0: This is episode 56 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Al Flosso, the Coney Island faker. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 56. This, by the way, is the second to the last episode for season two. I'm going to wrap things up a little bit early this season. I've got some big things in store for season three, so this will give me a little extra time to work on those. So today we experience a first on the Magic Detective Podcast, and that is we have a guest. We have an interview that we're doing, or just a conversation, I like to think. And uh, our guest today is Judge Gary Brown. He's a graduate of Columbia College and the Yale Law School. He's also a freelance writer and magic historian. He's written articles on magic and related topics for numerous popular magazines, including American Heritage, Emmy... Invention and Technology, Audacity, and Antiques and Collecting, as well as magic magazines including Genie, Mum, and Magic. His articles have appeared in three languages in the United States, Europe, and New Zealand. The Coney Island Faker was Judge Brown's first book and we are very fortunate to have him with us today. So Gary, welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast.
1: I am honored and grateful to be here. As you know, I'm one of your biggest fans, as well as a big fan of magic history in general. So thank you for having
0: me. Oh, my pleasure. And um, uh, I should let the listeners know it's uh, because your continued uh, encouragement that we're finally getting to the interview. So. um Thank you for that. I appreciate your point, it.
1: Your point being, I nudged you into doing this. That's okay. That's oh, okay. no.
0: It's, it's, uh, I needed it. So it's, it's perfect. So today we're talking about Al Flosso. Now, I know that Al was born October 10th, 1895 in New York City. His name was Albert Levinson. So uh, tell us,
1: how did he get the name Flosso? Oh, that's a great question. And the answer depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, my best Efforts suggested that it was because his mother's nickname was uh, his mother's uh, maiden name, sorry, was Flosterstein, and the kids called him Floss. And it it turned into Floss, that's what I learned. I learned that from Jackie, I learned it from a couple of other places. Um, there are one or two other variants on the story. I'll leave one for you. I think you came up with something different. Am I right about that?
0: Well, I, I happened to look it up on Wikipedia, and they said that uh, it was like uh. Uh, a slang term for cotton candy. And that's how, I guess, you know, being associated with Coney Island somehow, that's how he got the name. But it sounds like yours is probably more accurate. Probably,
1: probably. But I'll give you one that's completely inaccurate because it's so good. And it sort of tells you more about Flosso than any of the other stories. Okay. While I'm writing the book, uh, I had the great opportunity through a friend to get interviews with Jay Marshall. And Jay Marshall said, you know, when when you ask Flosso where he got his name from, he slid into his W.C. Fields accent, and he would tell you some story about a little dog. Let me tell you about a little dog. And I literally have that line in the book. He told you a story about a little dog. I had no idea what the story was. Uh-huh. But I, that's the best I had, and that's all I had. Sure. So I put that in there. Uh, well, one day, I, I had the opportunity to uh, spend some time with Max Maven, one of the great magic, magicians and magic historians of our day. He knows everything. Yeah, And he said, I read your book. and Gary, have you heard the story about the little dog? And I said, no. He said, let me tell you the story. And Max, in his accent, tells me the story, right, with his affectation, which was just great. Uh, but in essence, he would tell a story about getting his first job. And that he went to, the Flossos said he would into like some carnival, and he's doing tricks. And that's all right, kid. That's all right. What do you call yourself? I don't really call myself anything. Well, here's the deal: here's what you do. I got a dog in this in this show, Flosso the Wonder Dog. Now, if you're willing to change your name to Flosso the Wonder Boy, I only have to change two letters on the sign and we're in business. So, what do you say? So he claimed to have changed his name to fit the sign of the deceased Wonder Dog. I believe that to be completely untrue, and also very funny, right? <laughs> Which is, was one of the problems was writing about a guy like Flosso. I mean, he would tell you a story. I mean, yeah. he knew everything in magic. He knew everybody, but he also, because it was a bit of business, he would tell a story that would then say, well, that's where his name came from. That was not true, but it's hilarious. And uh, I was grateful for, to Max for sharing that with me.
0: Wow, I love that. So um, so Al, uh, born in 1895, so it's just the start of the century. Um, who in magic
1: inspires him to become a magician? Yeah, so my, my best recollection on that, and I have to check, I think it was, I mean, he saw, saw, saw Harry um, uh, Blackstone, right? But much earlier when Harry Blackstone was Harry Boulton. Right? Okay. Um, I believe he had access to him, and that was one of the first people he saw. Um, later on, he was very inspired by Downs and some other People, you know, um, he often told the story about Downs' book, right? The the uh, modern coin manipulation, the auto magic. You know, having watched T. Nelson Downs perform, said you bought the book, thinking, Now I can do that. <laughs> and those books were designed to show you that you couldn't do that. In other words, yeah. Downs gave up his story, you know, it is it, is his act in this book, but he, he didn't give up his story, which is you have to practice for 800,000 hours to do this. And so it was, you know, it was so frustrating for the young Flosso trying to learn to be a coin manipulator. What kind of magician was Al Flosso? Yeah, so he was, okay, he was very much a, you know, kind of 10 in one show magician, which meant he did his act over and over and over again. And that act became... Ultimately, the, the Miser's Dream is the centerpiece of it. But there's gotcha. there are production pieces in there. There's you know, He produces silks. He does the paper hat tear. You know, he builds a lot of things. And he had a polished act. It's okay. not to say he didn't do a lot of other things. While I was interviewing magicians, people would say to me, did you ever see him do the egg bag? His egg bag was phenomenal. Now, at that time, the internet was a lot um, leaner than it is today. you didn't have yeah. much stuff. I have since seen him do his egg bag on oh, really? Like, which is a yeah, a kid's show from New York City from that time, or oh, from the when I was young, it was in the 70s. He did the egg bag using a punch whistle, because he was a punch and judy operator as well. Okay. And it's hilarious because he's got this, these kids, he's doing the egg bag that we've all seen a thousand times. every time the kid puts the hand in the bag, he would blow the punch whistle and the kids are <laughs> jumping out of their skin. So it's hilarious. I, and just in preparation for this, I was looking to see other videos I hadn't seen before. I had heard an account of him doing um, uh, uh, the, the, the the card duck. Is uh, it yes. Joanne The card duck, yeah. right? And I finally got, got caught a video online of him doing that on a talk show in the 70s with Bob McAllister. And he does it in such a way. I mean, it's just so smooth and funny and whatever. But the, and the part he didn't do, I'd written about the book, was he... Um, would blindfold the duck, which some people do, you know. They tie, mm-hmm. you know. And he supposedly wrote the Peking duck joke, you know, because he would have one eye sticking out. It. Look at that! I got a Peking duck on my hands, you know, whatever. Um, but his magic was all that sort of pack small, plays big, act in a satchel. I mean, you know, if you can think of an act that would fit in a bag, you can sling over your shoulder. He you didn't, sure. you didn't do that stuff. But you want a nightclub magician? He's your guy. Give him a deck of cards, you get entertained all night. You know, he was that kind of practical low you know low, low rent magician in the sense of having you know small stuff mm-hmm. um, his background included the Punch and Judy shows right it included the, the, the magic acts it included the I, and I loved writing about this the the slum pitch act right they used all these slum packets yeah if we were a dime they would sell you know, all these things half of which didn't work or they were kind of more gags than they were magic but his ability to sell that stuff. I think what led him to become one of the great dealers in our time, first in straight magic and then in magic and collectibles. He was one of the first collectibles dealer because he started recognizing that people wanted things that had collectible value. He had a kind of an interesting career that way. Wow. Now, was
0: he a, a vaudeville performer or was that after or did
1: he miss that? Yeah, I think he, he kind of missed that. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, the, there were certainly vaudeville type dates that he did, right? But, mm-hmm. he, his, you know, he, he cut his teeth in the old railroad circuses, right? He was, they did the sideshow stuff. He worked with the, the three-legged man gotcha. and Lion- on the lion-faced man. And, you know, he was actually the manager for Lionel the Lion-Faced Man, which had some unbelievably funny sides to it. Um, uh, and so he worked in that those kind of rough crowds as teller says uh, said to me When we were writing the book and I, I quoted him He said he worked at a time when the crowds smelled bad, you know <laughs> And if you think about that, that's what Flosso was all about He said, you know, you want to get to be good at magic kid He'd tell some, you know startup. You, know, you want to do what I do? All you have to do is do the same act over and over again thousands and thousands of times for crowds who couldn't care less and you know what? At the end of that, he'll be a pretty good magician. That is uh, sage advice right there. That's so
0: true. So he's maybe latter part of Vaudeville. How long was he in Coney Island?
1: It, that's the funny part. Not that long, right? He did a couple of seasons, I think it was. As I, as I remember, it was a few scenes with the, the Dreamland Circus sideshow, right? There with the Dreamland sideshow. But by that time, he'd been performing for more than a decade in sideshows all over the country. You know, gotcha through the different, you know, again, the, the railroad circuses and different, you know, uh, he was there right around the time when the, when the, the sideshows were falling apart, right? Because they were, you know, the railroad uh, circuses went out and then they became sort of like truck shows, you know, and that's like going into the 20s and into the 30s. And that's about the time when he got out of it. Now, when I say get out of it, once he became a dealer, he's located in New York, he's still doing club dates, running around, he'll perform his show eight or nine times in a night in Manhattan, right? Because wow. of him, you know different you know different nightclubs different venues different conventions in town and he would run around all over the place doing these hotel you know stage type shows yeah and you know he was he had a name though he would always tell you know agent get me one dollar more than anybody else has ever worked for him. i'll do it you know he was always kind of like negotiating you know yeah that, sure. that, that corny side to himself so. and, and there's one amusing quick anecdote i'll tell you i, I mentioned in the book and this apparently happened more than once, but there was one night where he went to a, a show, I think it was like a like a furriers convention, and he runs in and he gets on the stage, and he does his act, and he kills and his agent calls him the next day and said, Al, where were you last night? What do you mean? You you missed that convention. What are you talking about? I had the meeting out of my hand. I did the miser's dream. I did this, I did that. The furriers loved it. He said, Furriers, you were playing the plumbers convention last night. <laughs> we just walked into the wrong convention and just performed so you know it, it's that kind of quick sort of you know busy lifestyle you know I mean, it's something that we can't even really relate to as much today you know wow interesting
0: so he's only in Coney Island and yet that is the
1: name that he gets known by
0: yeah so that was uh, uh,
1: that was the thing that happened he was you know he played performed as the king of coins with KZ with uh, the boy magician the wonder boy different things um, but he was introduced at some variety show, and it was Milton Berle was the MC. And Milton Berle, knowing he had this sort of sideshow background, he was associated with Coney Island, uh, he gets up and says, and here he is, Al Flosso, the Coney Island faker! Al goes, oh, no. That's that's it. That's my name. That's the name I've been looking for. And That's how he became the Coney Island faker.
0: Wow, so it comes from Milton Berle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that... Ladies and gentlemen, that is a future question on the Magic Detective podcast. Let me tell you, that is, I love that. Awesome. Very cool. Wow. Okay, so he's, um, everybody knows Flosso. Uh, he's in New York City. Everybody knows him. Uh, tell me about some, well, first off, I, you know, you know me in the Houdini uh, connection. Tell me about Flosso and Houdini. What kind of relationship
1: did they have? Yes, yeah, so that's great. So when you play that, uh, like the six degrees of separation game, you know, mm-hmm. Because of my work with Jackie Flosso and obviously this but I'm like you know three steps from Houdini, which is kind of cool right? you know Absolutely. so when he's growing up uh, Flosso works for Houdini. Uh, he's still young at this point I'm trying to remember the, the, the timing but it's toward the end of, of, of um, Houdini's life and he, he had a job he did two things he was selling he was um, buying and uh, buying illusions for Houdini. He would be like one of his stage managers who would like uh, buy supplies and illusions and that kind of thing. Um, but also, he started selling uh, Elliot's Last Legacy, which is one of Houdini's books. I, I, I guess I don't really know much about it. And he talks about it that he actually made quite a good living selling these books for a dollar a copy. And somewhere I read that Fosso had said that the books were even like physically defective. There was like something wrong with the bindings or whatever, but it didn't matter. It was Houdini's book, and he was pushing it. And he was selling it to, to everybody. So that was one connection with Houdini. They were also, I think, friends. Uh, you know, Houdini used to come to watch. Also perform at Coney Island. Okay. And when Flosso got married, uh, Houdini came down and met with him and said, uh, I'm going to give you a gift. And this is a gift that's going to make sure that you and your new wife never go hungry. And he handed him a, a, a package which had a notebook inside. It. And inside it was, inside that notebook, was Houdini had written out his mind-reading code. The mind-reading code. That yeah, the, the, the Roosevelt Blue. Roosevelt, Blue. Yes, and... Um, and he gave that to Flosso as a wedding gift. Wow. And for a couple of years, Flosso, yeah, thereafter, Flosso and his wife uh, performed a, a mind-reading act. She was mad at really? a And, you know, it didn't last too long, I think, in part because his wife had the baby, had baby Jack, and she got off the road. But I have a, there were a few like, flyers I had with her as Madame Xenia and the great Al Flosso, and they were going to do this mind-reading act. And it was clearly the Houdini act that they got as a wedding gift
0: fascinating wow that is cool you had mentioned pre-interview uh that he was good buddies with dunninger yeah very good buddy,
1: buddies with Dunninger. so dunninger um he and dunninger uh spent tons of time together dunninger used to come out come back to the shop and hang out and read the books and they would spend hours and hours together there's all kinds of stories of them forgetting people in the shop and leaving and going out you know just hilarious stuff <laughs> um but in watching that interview i mentioned to you uh, a few minutes ago and it's you know, it sort of shows you the kind of uh, uh, marketing uh, perception of the world. You know, he's asked on this TV show in the '70s, "Who's the greatest magician who ever lived?" Well, clearly that would be Houdini. You know, he does this little shtick. He says, "But since Houdini died, the greatest magician ever is the mentalist, Dunninger. He's got it. He's got, it. and he doesn't even have a real reason for it. He's yeah. just like, you know, he's got it all. He's got the act. He's the thing. He's the guy." No the interviewer doesn't know enough to say, oh, and Al, isn't he also your best friend, right? Like, that was <laughs> the, next, the follow-up question that never happened. Um, but they were very close. And it was actually a very sweet relationship. Um, when Dunesha died, um, Fosso didn't live much longer. And they said that part of it was that he was really crushed over the wow. last. Well,
0: what's ironic about that, that you, I find out from you that he's their best friends, is I read a quote online from, uh, from Dunninger saying that Al Lasso was the greatest magician. Right. So uh, I guess they have this pact. Whenever you're asked, just uh,
1: it's you, it's me, it's you, it's me. Yeah, and also you so, um if you look at some of the old magic magazines, you see Flosso pushes some of the products like the hypnospecks, you know, the the fake you know, the fake eyeglasses, or, you know, the X-ray goggles or whatever. Um, it, you know, it was interesting to hear a few magicians related to me. You know, you go into Flosso shop was famously a mess, right? It was just mm-hmm. like it's dirty and dusty, and there were wood floors, and it was like, you know, like it was like a thousand years old. And they say you walk into this disaster of a place, and it is you know, is this man. This very distinguished looking gentleman, you know, sitting on a chair with his hands folded, his walking stick, and it's Dunninger, right? You know, who, I don't know if you know, was sort of faked in English accent. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But he had this, this sort of affected, you know, aristocratic air. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, to walk in and run into Dunninger in the middle of this, like, you know, this thieves market, essentially, was really quite a shocking, you know, image.
0: I also read about the Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers come up in...
1: Flosso's story. So what is the connection there? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of, like, sort of a looser connection. They grew up in the same neighborhood. Um, they were, oh, wow. Yeah, there's some friends in common and so forth. Uh, but what happens when they make one of the movies, and I want to say it was a night at the opera, I, I, I'd have to double check that, but uh, they needed a punch and Judy operator, right? Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, one of the joys, I'm just going to go on a little tangent here, which maybe you'll edit later, but, um, you know, in researching this and other things I did later was working with Jack Flosso. Jack Flosso, like his father, could tell a story, you know, and he said, I tell you about the time my dad worked with the Marx brothers. And I said, no, so he tells me this story. They they hire, um, if if you've ever seen the film, uh, Flosso is the Punch and Judy operator and eventually uh, Harpo steps into the show and there's a little, puppet costume hanging around his neck and (laughs) and he's getting hit by punch and hitting him back and whatever and he destroys the show that's like part of the deal you don't see Flosso at all but he's working the puppets and he said my father had to go to their like rehearsal you know where where the studios I think it was New Jersey I'm not 100% on that but he might have gone out to California I'm not I'm not sure but he says he goes into this place and it's madness he said they're you know backstage you know was like inside one of their movies they were like bookies and racetrack touts and hangers on people running on and you know the women you know harpo chasing the women around he said it was just like being in the movie you know and he said my father got harpo to like stick around just long enough so he could measure his neck to make the puppet costume for him because Falso made that for the for the movie um he said but, but harpo said listen look around you there ain't no rehearsal you know we're not going to do a rehearsal <laughs> not just practice if the cameras are gonna roll, you just do your thing, I'll do my thing, and that's it, you know? And he's like, all right, thanks, and that was it. And he's, that's what's in the movies. It was just something We just and you can see if you want to, read, it's complete chaos. But wow. he said, that was where they, how they lived, you know? So my father had this experience, said Jack, you know, of walking in and seeing the Marx Brothers. And he said, but it was like being inside the movie when the cameras weren't rolling.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm gonna have to go back and check out that movie now just just for that. So so Al isn't even on camera; he's
1: behind the scenes running the. Uh, well, when you do see puppets. his. His he had a little, this little puppet theater, and he's working yeah. with the puppet right. Um, that the, the theater he uses there, I don't believe, is the theater he actually used. They okay. most um, most Punch uh, and Judy operas had this big kind of bulky thing, and yeah. he had schlepped it around. The thing. He he had a thing that he built. And he'd fit on his shoulders and it was just a flat top over his head so oh it wasn't like it didn't have the curtains and the whole scene but he could break it down and pack it and go and if you think about it again that's the whole sort of the traveling magician idea oh, you know, that's you know, thing. wheel thing you got a big crate you got a wheel on it. yeah so something that breaks down and folds up is quite valuable and he built a custom stage and a few of the, the punch and judy operators i interviewed were just blown away by it. they were like I wish I had something like that that thing he built was unbelievable you know so it, it's interesting uh, and if and may can I share one other thing yeah 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 so Punchy Judy comes back uh, one more time in his life he stops doing that in the you know in the day he actually handed off his his puppets to I think Jay Marshall who took over that job because it sort of waned interest in that it's still the occasional birthday party um many years later. Fast forward into the 70s. So we're talking about like from the 40s into the 70s, like, you know, quarter of a century later or so. Yeah. He gets a call. Frost in the shop. He's an old man at this point, And he gets a call from Jim Henson. <laughs> <laughs> and Jim Henson's on the phone. He's like, I'm sorry, you're the guy with like the Muppets with those things and all of the high tech special effects. Yes, says Jim, H- Jim Henson. We're having a, a, a convention, puppeteers convention. We want you to perform. You want me to perform i got a couple of battered old like punch and duty figures and a little thing that fits on my shoulders you got the 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 sesame street playhouse with the, the high tech what what trust me says jim henson they will love it and he went up to there was a i think it was upstate new york there was a, a american puppeteers convention and he performed his act and there was a whole move he did where the, there was a monkey character in punch and judy and there's a stick that gets thrown back and forth. Now, this is a guy who's doing this over his head and can't see, but yet he could throw the stick between the two figures and catch it and not miss it. And they said the puppeteers were absolutely blown away because, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, none of them could do because he had done it 10,000 times. Yeah, no kidding. So it was sort of interesting to me to have this sort of, this, this little, little piece of history come back. I mean, the Muppets are still relevant today. They're still making movies and television yeah. shows, and whatever, you know. And here's a guy who in the 30s is running around in these, these railroad sidecars that shows where, you know, he's got a three-legged man sitting next to him and, you know, the small people and heavy people and, you know, you know Kiko and Iko, the ambassadors from Mars. <laughs> and, and the same stuff that worked then worked now, which is amazing, right? I, I, Fantastic. Jim Henson.
0: Mm. It's funny how it, the, uh, when you're in the uh, particular genre, how you love the history of it. I mean, we love the history of magic. They love the history of puppetry. Right. And, and, you know, whether it's ventriloquism or whatever it is, it's like, you know, oh, yeah, I want to see a guy from 70 years ago. I, you know, can't wait to be part of that and experience it.
1: Yeah, this is a complete sort of... Tangent in the center to what we're talking about. But if you think about it, right, you and I love digging up old, like historic magic pieces. We've talked about a few of them recently, right? The yeah. different things you find in an old book. You know, I've done the edible candle, which was popular in the 1850s. Yes. And I've done it in nightclubs today, and it, it works. It still works. It's different, you know. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting. If you think about the miser's dream, the miser's dream almost makes no sense today. Because you bring somebody in the audience, out of the audience, and you say, okay, I'm gonna make you a millionaire. This was Brooklyn, right? <laughs> a millionaire for a four minutes time or whatever, five minutes time, you gonna be a millionaire. And then you proceed to produce a handful of half dollars. Yeah. In today's world, people don't even use half dollars, right? Yeah. I mean- use coins today. Yeah, right? So what relevance is that Well, you know, I have to there was a guy, uh, forgive me, I'm terrible with names, I'm not gonna remember his name. He just went to FISM to the, uh, the championships in Korea. I don't think he won, but he won here, right? Wow. And he did a Miser's Dream routine. And I know that um, actually, Lance Burton and Jeff McBride had a lot to do with training this fellow, he was really good. But he did a Miser's Dream where he produced credit cards and bills and a gold bar, right? The piece oh, wow. of the gold bar. All of a sudden, it's interesting. He's using ATM cards and credit cards, and he's doing, but it was very similar. It wasn't exactly a mind stream, but it was very similar in terms of the moves and so forth, but it made it relevant. I mean, audiences today, I was in one where, like, holy crap, that's a gold bar, right? That's something, you know? Yes. Whereas if you produce four half dollars today, it's still interesting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people doing mind stream should stop, but you, you know, think about the crowds that had to scrape together a nickel. Or a dime to go see Flosso and ten other acts. Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, with with five silver dollars or half dollars in their hands, that that was a bigger impact then. So history gives us two different things: there are techniques, and then there's also themes. And how do you play off those themes? Well, one theme would be to take five half dollars and make it a gold bar, right? That yeah. would be interesting to modern audiences, you know. So that's just something I would throw in there. Magic history is worth looking at for those reasons, right? That's oh. Totally.
0: Uh, I remember when I, I had been doing Miser's Dream for a number of years and the thought occurred to me, uh, what if I used a clear bucket as opposed to the metal bucket? My only concern was, could you hear, you know, the sound? Because let's face it, in the Miser's Dream, that's 90% is the sound it makes. I mean, you can, There there are stories of T. Nelson Downs forgetting his coins, walking out on stage with nothing and mimicking it. And, you know, yet you get the sound from the bucket because he's got those coins, but nothing else. And um, so, you know, with the, the bucket I had, it was a plastic bucket, but it had these ridges all the way around. So what it basically did, you could see my hand in there, but you couldn't see my hand in there. So I could do everything you could do with a regular bucket. Very cool. Um, and it and it it played, I had a, a couple of magicians that saw it and said, I can't believe what you did. That was incredible. And I'm like, Yeah, it's it's not a gimmick bucket, yet in a way it is.
1: Right.
0: right. And it's so cool. But that's again thinking, you know, how do you update this? And that's that was my contribution to the to the whole thing. Let's get back to the magic shop. So this shop begins as Martinka's. It becomes, I guess uh, I guess at the time, there's Martinka's and there's Hornman's Magic Shop. And Hornman buys uh, Martinka's from the Martinka brothers when they decide to retire. Right. And then uh, Hornman has it for a while. And Now, I I may be wrong on this. I know Houdini and Charles Carter are both owners at some point. I don't know if they owned Martinka's or Hornman's or which one, but they're involved. Um, and then eventually, Frank Ducro gets it. And along with Frank Ducro Ducro is Daisy White, who's a demonstrator in the shop. And by the way, if you want to learn any more about Daisy White, check out uh, podcast episode 24, because I talk about Daisy White like like nobody's ever heard. It's an excellent episode. So Frank Ducro dies. There you go. Picture Frank Ducro for you.
1: Go ahead. Awesome. Awesome. So Ducro dies. What happens then? So the show, um, the, the shop comes up for sale. I believe that's the point at which Flawstow bought it. He tried to buy it earlier, but he was like a road magician. He was out somewhere in Omaha or something, and he just missed, missed the opportunity. He wanted to. When, I think when Charles Carter bought it, he actually said, I was interested then, but I just couldn't get back in time and do it, you know, and he probably didn't have the money. Uh, but by this time, he'd put a few dollars away. He had a kid. He didn't want to be on the road forever, and he decided to buy this shop. Right. And this shop has and, you know, I saw him in a recent interview that I watched recently. You know, it was back in the 70s. You know, every time he'd tell the story of the shop, it changed a little bit. Oh, it was the oldest shop in 1854. Like, I don't know if he was right on the dates. You know what I mean? But it was clearly, you know, it was this shop that had moved from the Martinka brothers where they founded the Society of American Magicians, as you all know. It's yeah. Another episode you want to cite there. But yes. Yeah, um, and which is just an exciting place, right? And then eventually, eventually it's bought by Charles Carter, who was much more interested in being a touring illusionist than running mm-hmm. a shop. Uh, Houdini, who was really interested, and he bought it around. I want to say the time of the the, the, the last pandemic. I want to say when I was around nineteen nineteen or thereabouts, because he was very into the movie business. Yes, yeah. so bought this thing, but it wasn't really his thing. Uh, and then he gets out of it. He pushes it off on his partner, I think. And uh, it goes to Ducro. Ducro it, runs it for a while. The funny part there, the the, the funny contrast there is Ducro. They say was very much like a, like a pharmacist. You know, he had like every drawer labeled with you know alphabetical you know things. Where, and when Flosso had it, it was just a heap. You know, it was just a disgraceful mound of things. You know, because he, he did not have this sort of organizational capacity. At the same time. He would say, what do you want, kid? Oh, one of those. There I wanna know somebody and just dive under some pile and come out. Like it was like a rat's nest. You know, but that's really, some pictures, and I have a few in the book of him in the shop. And but the human mind can't even absorb what's there. They said he knew where every single thing has. You know, the thing he was. He was was the the shop um, of Three Wonders. You wonder if I have it? I wonder if I can find it or or I wonder if I can get it. And everyone is how I found it. Like, that's like, you know, that was the, you know, um, but you could find anything at Flossos. Right. And he said, and and what was interesting about how he ran the shop was there was definitely this sort of sideshow carny aspect, you know, rich kid walked in, the prices went up, you know, Uh, I had heard this described to me so many times. I didn't experience it until, Few years ago, when another dealer—go nameless for the purpose of this—kind of an older fellow now passed. Um, I tried to buy something from him, and and it was ju- it just reminded of what people said about Flosso. Everything you picked up, oh, that—that's a museum piece. Everybody wants. Oh, that's the most valuable thing in the shop you found there. You know, and I'm looking at this guy who was doing the same thing. I said, "But you got three of them." Well, okay, maybe it's not that valuable, whatever you know. That's so rare, you'll never see another. But there's six of them here, you know. Whatever. But Floster, they said every thing was that to a guy who could pay, right? So mm-hmm. um Louis Marks, uh, Louis Marks, who ran the Marx Toy Company, his son would come in. So the prices went up outrageously because his team came <laughs> the and go, You know what I mean? On the other hand, for a kid who didn't have money, you know, he always made sure they had car fare to get home. He would talk them out of buying like expensive junk and say, "Look, here's his Henry Hayes amateur magician's handbook. Buy this instead. Two dollars. Go home with more tricks than you could fit in your bag. You know that kind of thing." Um, he was very careful about not like sort of swindling people who couldn't afford it, not taking money from you know. What I mean? He was very generous yeah. with his advice and, and so forth. So so there was a duality to it, right? You know, if you you know if there's a, there was was one time where I, there was this like Texas businessman who just sold him a bunch of. Junk and took hundreds of dollars from him. And he walked out. And somebody who was there said, after this guy walked out, and said, What? I shouldn't take it from him. If you, I ounce it, he'll go to Tannins. Lou will take him. Someone's gonna take him on this <laughs> the money, on this stupid stuff he's never gonna use. I'll take the money, you know. So it, it it was sort of interesting. And then, of course, he was there for when the world transitioned or started to transition to collectibles, you know, and he made a lot of money off original Horace Golden pieces and Thurston things and letters, some of which were in the shop, right? You had original Houdini correspondence. and, you know, Though the real collectors, people like Doc Albo, right? And they say, he never charged me too much. If I bought him a Chinese dinner afterwards, we were square. Like he you know, he charged very little for some of the things, particularly paper ephemera, right? Uh-huh. There was a, more of an emphasis in those days on an apparatus. Yeah. You know? um, and he wasn't beyond hustling Anybody, you know, uh, I think it was Bradley Fields. Who was a, you might know him. He was a, a Washington-based magician. He just passed away, yeah. Oh, yeah, he was a nice guy. But he was talking about how when they, uh, Flosso is showing a set of cups and balls, and every is going to relate to this, the, the cup had a little hole in it, so you could run a thread through, and you could attach the ball to a thread, which you could tie to a button or something, so this way you could make the ball appear and disappear at will. It's a really interesting little twist okay. on cups and balls. So he's showing it to some guy who's not buying it. He's like, "Man, eh, it's all right. Are like, oh, you kidding? Look at this thing. I got the thing with the thread. I could do this and that. So Bradley Fields is watching. And he's young. And he says, you know, I, Al, can I talk to you for a second? And he pulls him aside from the customer. He says, look, let this guy go. I, 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 I'll buy it from you. You know, I'll pay, you know. And and he says, oh, OK, very good kid, very kid. he turns to turn another you hear that guy? This kid here, he wants to buy it. You better buy it or else this kid's going to buy it. And the customer bought it and used you say i'm watching it walk out the door I'm like but i wanted it nah, like i'll get you something else you know and so there was always this salesman's you know routine about everything was valuable and he would just hustle one guy against another you know to, to make the sale
0: so he had the shop right up until he died correct so uh now dunninger's hanging out there for the, the
1: bulk of his life who else comes into the shop oh god everybody Everybody who was anybody in Magic walked in and out of fossils. They, I, I only wish, I mean, I was there much later when Jackie was running it in his later years. And, you know, I would run into people like Jeff Sheridan and so forth. But if you, in the, or Sal Stone, I mean, just really interesting people. Some of the people helped me write the book, actually. You know, George Schindler would come in. Um, but they say in the day, I mean, everybody who was anybody in Magic stopped in. If they were in town, if they were in New York City, which is a lot. Um, you would get all all sorts of people, including people outside of our traditional magic circles. You know what I mean? In other words, you, you, if you named a performer, I'd probably say, "Oh yeah, sure, that guy, this guy." I could, you know, we could go on about it. But you know, Danny Kay would come up to the shop because Danny Kay did magic when he performed for the, the United Nations trips that he would take. Mm. Jackie Gleason was great story, right? So so Jackie Gleason was a, was, a, was a hang around at our shop, particularly when he was. Down on his luck. And they say, you know, Flosso used to throw him money here and there. Like it'd say, you know, here's 20 bucks, here's 50 bucks, you know, go get yourself a new suit, you know, and, and Gleason was having a hard time. Much later, when Jackie Gleason becomes Jackie Gleason, he's got the honeymooners his own variety show. To pay him back, he would hire Flosso to build props for the show. So oh, Flosso wow. would fall over and build like a, you know, a growing the example Jackie gave me was of like a growing tree they needed for some comedy sketch. A tree that kept growing so he would go and build a little thing and so uh, to pay him back from all the times he you know loaned him money and not returned it you know because he was not really alone it was a handout yeah he uh, would come over and say okay you built that, that that tree for me uh how much do you want uh alice i don't know 25 you know something you know you make up some low price 25 and what's that you want 50 dollars? that's outrageous that's highway robbery uh, Wait, what do you mean? And he said, No, I didn't say twenty-five. Oh, you're gonna argue with me that you want seventy-five? All right, you know, and he'd look at the treasurer on the show. Pay the man a hundred dollars, let's call it square. Give him a hundred dollars, but I don't want to hear from him. but that was the way he said he paid him back over the years. Every time he went, he walked out with a hundred, two hundred dollars for you know, an hour's work, you know. And that was his way of, of sort of comping him for that. So it was really an interesting blend of, of you know, and I can't tell you how many people spent their youth, you know, Jamie and Swiss, you know, we talk about going in there and getting to meet different, you know, just, just these legends. Yeah. To pick some stuff up, but more importantly, just sort of to hang out and, and, and meet other people. It was a shop, not for profit, really, but for talking and meeting and the social aspect and the history of magic. And people really uh, you know, loved that. I think that was every magic shop yeah, at least at a time. Um,
0: but but I mean, I I can't think of any magic shop that really ever, ever really made money. Um, but the social aspect was an important part, and especially if the the owner or the dealer uh, had a background in magic, because there's shops where the the person that owns it, you know, is a fan of magic but never really did magic. Versus the ones that the you know, like Denny Haney, for example, that was a full time performer.
1: Yeah, yeah. You I might like that. Yeah, having grown up in the New York area, I, I did not spend time at Blossom's. I wish I had. Right, I didn't. I wasn't really that at that level of sort of entry into the field. My dad knew enough to take me to Tannins, and Tannins was much. Um, I mean, it was, it was very much a, a professional magician shop in the sense that it wasn't for the tourists trade necessarily you know gotcha. Did, gotcha. okay but it was much glitzier it was much more professional it was much smoother right they said if you went to flossos if you didn't know what you were doing you know what you're looking at I mean Doc Albo, who's you know the greatest collector there was, said the first time he walked in he was like outraged you know like this is disgusting it's my God <laughs> he said, but within a few minutes I'm looking and then I'm seeing this nickel piece or this you know this turned wood thing and I realized this place is full of stuff but it's just a disaster. So I think, that they were, you know, like Tannins would have been a much smoother operation. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you one other. Uh, David Burglass. You familiar? Yeah, with that? yeah, yeah. So David Burglass tells this great story about he comes, <laughs> and this is very much Flosso's personality. He comes from England and he's heard about Flosso's shop. So he visits, he goes up to the shop and there's a couple of people in there and Flosso says, look at that. It's the amazing David Burglass, all the way from London. Look at that. Just in our shop, the famous, world famous. David, watch the shop for me. I got to go to the post office. Out the door, and he leaves for like a half hour. And Burglass says, I've got a cash register full of cash, right? You know, and, and and people behind. And so he just sat there and told them stories for a half hour until Fosso came back from the post office. That is hysterical. <laughs> Uh, and and not um, unusual, yes. I think. Um, and what would frequently happen in a shop like this, you know, it was a relatively the shop that I knew was quite small. It, it moved a few times, but uh, it, it was a relatively small room, you know. And you'd be full of all these collectors and hang around, and magicians and whatever. But once in a while, you also would have an interaction with a kid that would drive them all to distraction. Now, this is a pretty uh, common story about Flaws. So, if you haven't heard, it's worth. You're repeating, it was the kid who runs in off the street and says, I want to buy a magic wand. You want to buy a magic wand? You know, man, I have the wand for you. And he would reach behind the case. And it sounds like something out of Harry Potter. Yeah. I had a magic wand that was in the glass case wood wand, you know, with the metal tips. And he'd hand it to the kid and say, you see this? This was the wand of the great Alexander Herman, <laughs> He was a very important magician. I'm gonna give this to you. You can have it for a dollar. And it would work great magic for you. And so the kid would pay him the dollar and bolt out of the room. And the magicians and collectors in the room, would Al, what are you doing? What are you, and he would hold up his hand, you know, five to two inches, you know, he, but he, would, he could command the crowd. Hold on. And he'd walk in the back and he'd have a box full of the same exact magic wand, pull one out, slide it back into the glass case and say, Herman had a lot of wands, <laughs> 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 and I've heard versions of that with Herman. I've heard it with Houdini, right? But that was the you know the notion. I had all these guys where, but the kid came in for a oh, dollar. He sold a Houdini's wand. Wow!
0: Yeah, I had he- heard something like that myself. Uh, I couldn't remember if it was a wand or what it was, but it was like, oh, this, was, this was Houdini's and this was the very last one I have and it's yours for whatever. And then they would walk out and he'd get another one and put it on the shelf. Those of
1: us who live in the world of history and collecting in the age of eBay and you know, should think about that, right? We get the, the provenance of something, you know, and I've I got this wand here it was sold by Al Flosso in the 1970s and it's Houdini's original wand. That's a pretty good story. That's a pretty good province, yeah. right? Except if you ask people, he sold 700 wands just mm-hmm. that way, you know? Um, I have something in the book about he used to sell original Houdini handcuffs. Do you know about that? You're a big Houdini collector. Uh, okay, th-
0: that's funny because that's the thing I thought that he sold of Houdini's was like, this is, you know, an original Houdini handcuff. Well, th- this one
1: has a better problem. because it was Hardine who yeah. would them to Flosso. Yeah. Because he would go down to the Bowery, and for a few dollars, he would buy a gross. That's 144 for yeah. those who are math challenges 144 sets of handcuffs and have them stamped Houdini. It would say Houdini on it. So for Flosso, this was like gold. Like, this is, no, it's, look, it says Houdini. It's an original Houdini handcuff. I bought it from Hardin. Oh, of course you would buy that. Now there's another story I have in the book with a collector organization. Oh, you want one of those? There's a million of. Them. I got loads of those. I'll get you a pair. It's a gift, of, you know, of no value today. Somebody not knowing that would probably pay a four-digit number, right? Thousands of oh, yeah, dollars. Yeah. The, the hand, Houdini handcuffs
0: go for four digits easily, right. and and every time I see one, I'm like, you don't a, a you don't know it was Houdini's because right. they went to Hardine afterwards
1: and there, there, there's like a never-ending supply. Right, Hardin was just printing them out, right? So, I mean, if you even have that level of providence, you can show this, you know, DNA. Hardin's DNA is on it, for goodness mm-hmm. sakes. It's still something he was buying by the gross in the Bowery, right? Barrels full of them, and having some guy stamp Houdini on them, and if also selling them for what they are. I mean, he was telling people, the Hardin makes them all the time. Here you go, you know? So, <laughs> kind of interesting, and makes you think, It was about some of the collectibles we we chase, you know.
0: Flossel lives into the 70s, correct? Uh, like mid, like 76 or something like that. He's 80 or 81.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I don't have dates in front of anybody. I think that's okay.
0: That's that's okay. Um, so
1: does he die of old age or uh, he had kidney cancer and uh, oh, first it went well and then it went badly, and it was just very sad.
0: Yeah,
1: all endings are sad, but you know, it's it's not a good. Yeah, but you know he lived a long life. Yeah, he got to he he got to influence magic in in so many ways. You know, I mean the fact that this guy goes in my mind from you know the the pre depression railroad circus era, right? The the Clyde G. Barn circus and so forth into television right? We're, we're, he's doing stuff on Ed Sullivan. He appeared six, seven times on Ed Sullivan. He was on Winderama every Sunday morning. He would do, well, many Sunday mornings he would do things. You know, the thing I mentioned before, I would do working with the Muppets and Jim Henson. I mean, you think about, wow, what a lifespan. You know what I mean? What a, what a world he covered, you know? It, it, it was fascinating. Speaking
0: of fascinating, so you said you didn't necessarily hang out at the shop. How is
1: it that you become the author of Flosso's book? yeah so i 'm like the accidental historian so um i i started doing i was i became interested in magic history in the nineties and um i started i did start to hang around the shop then when Jackie was running the, the shop at that time and I wrote a few things i wrote something on Horace Golden and i started i met Jackie and i said you know your father was kind of famous. we should write something because what would have been his hundredth birthday was coming up okay ninety five i think ninety six so I said, let's write something for his 100th birthday. So we write, we put together a very sort of cursory biographical uh, sketch of outlaw. So we put it in the MUM. Um, and it, there were some good stories in there because Jackie was a great rock and tour and I can tell you a little bit more about that. But um, we put this out and I did put uh, my email address, which, you know, it's 1990s emails, new and exciting, right? If people want yeah. to be here. And from that, I get notes and letters and cards from everybody in the world. It was unbelievable. I get stuff from Hong Kong, Bob Rossi is over there. Oh, let me talk about philosophy. Everyone felt the urge, the need, the desire to share a philosophy story they had You know, with, with me. Um, I heard from Sherry Lewis, right, the, the famous puppeteer, right? Because yeah. Bob I had known him and she learned magic from him. Um, different people, you know, David Burglass contacted me with his experiences. It was just amazing. And all of a sudden, a few months later, I'm looking at this file because I kept all the letters and emails that I printed out in in a file. And I had this file that, I know this is audio so people can't see me, but I'm holding my hands apart several inches, several inches of paper, right? Each one with a story. And I said, I can't let this go to waste. So I decided to build the biography from that. I was very lucky to have jackie as the resource so when someone said something to me he'd say oh i forgot to tell you about that and he would fill me in on some details um the internet was not what it is today we didn't have ask alexander if i had asked alexander i could have done it in 15 minutes i literally traveled around the country to read i went to the library of congress to read the old sphinx magazines they have the oh, complete my. down set Do you know whose set they have dean carnegie that was harry's houdini set and there's Houdini's notations in the in, in the margins. Oh, interesting. And I'm just looking for any time Flosso appeared anywhere, or wrote an article, or somebody wrote a review of him. And it's a page by page thing. So I spent, you know, days in the in the Library of Congress getting this great stuff, writing to people, having collectors send me things, you know, clips from magazines and newspapers and different things. So I had kind of a bare bones biography, you know, biographical data about him. Which might be uh, inaccurate, right? Because a lot of it was oral, right? Uh, but but I had some of the, the dates and places, Billboard magazine stuff. But it was really the people coming forward, writing me mean, you notes, know, me getting on the phone with with Bill Tarr, getting on the phone with you know. All the, I can't even begin to tell you the number of people I got to meet wow. through the process because he had affected so many people in so many different ways. Um, and, and it was fascinating, and the stories brought it to life, you know. Uh, and I, I could share a few more of those if you wanted, but... It was oh yeah, like, please it was, do, yeah. I mean, the, the the funny stories, the scary stories The you know, uh, Jane Marshall was, was just unbelievable telling me about uh, also doing the um, Miser's Dream in the 30s with a teenager. And this is a little bit off color, and you might cut this later, but you can decide. <laughs> um he calls a kid up on stage and he was very big on, on bringing the kid up on stage as the audience, right? So that kid was, the, was, the, was the, the spectator, the witness for the audience. I know that he was doing these small things, producing coins legitimately, right? Mm-hmm. But if you ever watch his tapes, I mean, you couldn't do today what he was doing then. He was hands in pockets, he was putting things on him. And Anyway, this one kid comes up and he also finds a condom in the kid's pocket. It's a team. It's the 1930s. Okay. So instead of just covering it up, he does that. My goodness, boy, I don't know what this is. This is a coin. This is a very strange thing you've got here. Now the kid is squirming. And instead of ending it there, Flosser just keeps planting it on him again in other pockets. Oh, look at this, you got another one of these things. Oh, you must use these a lot. And another one in this shirt pocket. And G. Marshall said, you know, the kid is just dying, but this is a once in a lifetime for Flosser. He's got a kid with a condom in his pocket. So in addition to the coins here, oh, and there's another one of these, you know. So <laughs> you get those kinds of, of, of unbelievable pictures, you know. Um, the other one I think I, you and I discussed earlier, but I'll just share it in case you want to share this with your listeners. My favorite story, and when people ask me to do readings from the book, this is the page I go to first, um, was Harry Blackstone. Now, you have to remember, these guys grew up in a world. They're carnies. They're sideshow guys. They're traveling magicians. You know, it was dangerous in some ways, right? There's always the risk of a, what they used to call a hey-roob, where the crowd goes wild on you. Yeah. she cheated. Or, God forbid, you get involved with the cops, right? That's... A, so a woman... Walks up to so he's done a day's worth of work, he's done eight shows in a row, and he's sitting there packing up his stuff. And a woman walks up to him and says, hey, mister, have you ever heard of a, of a, of a magician named Blackstone? Now, you and I, anybody else who knows anything about magic know Harry Blackstone, of course you know Harry Blackstone. But Flossow, being a carny, being a sideshow guy, says, Blackstone, Blackstone, hmm, and he strokes his chin. <laughs> let me ask the question, madam, why do you ask? And she then explains that Blackstone had come to town and had slept with her daughter, promised the daughter marriage, something terrible, right? Impregnated daughter, something awful. And (laughs) And she's looking for him. And Flossow then sits back and says, Blackstone, Blackstone, never heard of him. Never heard of him. Now, for Al Flossow to never have heard of Blackstone is ridiculous. But it just shows the kind of world that these guys occupied and the kinds of experiences they had. And when I got stories like that, I said, i got to write this book. I mean, that's oh, hysterical. You know I mean? That's
0: hysterical.
1: That is funny. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going to add one other thing, if I may. Yeah. Uh, um, working with Jackie Flosso was the greatest, right? Because not only did I work on this book and stuff about his dad, but I then used him as a resource until we lost him in the, in the 90s. Uh, I would go, anytime I was writing about anything or anybody, Jackie knew something. It was unbelievable. He had seen more and experienced more. I don't know if Jackie was old enough to see Thurston or he was just relaying the second hand from his father. But the first time I met Jackie Flosso, I said um, a little bit embarrassed. He said, you're really in magic history. What's that about? I said, well, my my, my grandfather, and this is true. uh, My grandfather saw uh, The Vanishing Horse. I saw Thurston do The Vanishing Horse. Wow, And I was a little sheepish about this because I knew that like, people like Randy had written this is how ridiculous people are. Um, but I said, my grandfather believed that he had hypnotized the audience, that the only way to do it was to hypnotize <laughs> the audience. Right? And, you know, I mean, look, for us, that's sort of amusing, but, you know. And, and, Fluss, and Jackie Flosser looked at me and said, well, in a way, your grandfather wasn't wrong. Howard Thurston could mesmerize an audience. When Howard Thurston spoke and told the woman to rise, it didn't matter how he was doing it, but he made you believe that he was doing it. So in a weird sense, your grandfather was right. And that was, I almost cried a little bit. I mean, like we became friends from that moment. Wow. And I would go to him and he would tell me about seeing Blackstone perform when he was a kid and Blackstone would give away the rabbit you know, to a kid and he wanted to get the rabbit. He was crying because he didn't get the right, all that kind of stuff. And I'll give you an idea of how the depth of, 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 of Jackie Flosso's knowledge, I did a piece on Grover George, somebody you and I know because of the, the poster collecting, but mm-hmm. nobody knows because Thurston sued him out of business within yeah. like 30 seconds of him starting his career or whatever. Jackie Flosso saw Grover George perform. Wow. So he was on the road with his father in like, he was a kid in, in somewhere in New England. I don't remember where. But he said, it was so sad. He said, I was a little kid. He says, and, and, and George dressed up, you know, and he had this nice costume and, and 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 his assistants had these nice kind of these pretty equipment but we're in this dingy like warehouse like this terrible like, performance venue and he's like now I'm going to transport you to the mysteries of the Orient and you know we're going to travel to Asia in our minds and we'll see China and and he says and I'm eight years old and thinking well this isn't China in morale. But Jackie also had that experience he saw Grover George perform right and so I could, I could draw so many things from him when I would work with him on these things. It was just wonderful. As a, as a historian, it was just I, everything he said to me. I knew, like I got to get this down. Yeah. And I wrote so many little pieces and snippets and posts because he would tell me little things like that, you know. So it was just a great, great experience. And I'm, I'm blessed with that. Now, was
0: Jackie, was Jackie
1: a performer or did he just did he take over the shop and just was a dealer? You know, he was very much a performer, and, I, and I'm glad you asked me that because it reminds me of something else I wanted to share with you and maybe everybody. Um, uh, he was a performer during World War II. He was in the USO. And he okay. He did nightclub work, a lot of cruise ship work. So his dad continued to run the shop, and he would travel and do different things. I had the rare opportunity to see him perform, and it's because of this night. Um, I have actually a thing right here. I'll show you. you can maybe shows later. This was Monday Night Magic. We did a, a book a launch there and they did a special show where they brought the Masters of Magic in, and they had Jackie Fosso perform. Uh, Presto was there. Um, I mean, hold on. I have uh, uh, Bobby Baxter, you might know. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Todd Robbins was the MC, uh, and Frank Brents, right? So okay. I get to be backstage with that group of guys, these guys who have Unreal. been performing for Decades and decades. Yeah. My role was, I did a little reading from the book, and we ran a video of Flosso doing The Miser's Dream, and for me, that was the greatest, because I knew that video by heart, but I got to watch the crowd, and in the dark, right, they, darkened, they they put out the lights, and in the reflections from the screen, I got to see everybody just mesmerized and hysterical and laughing and cheering and clapping at this act in a can from, you know, you know decades earlier, you know? But also they can be backstage with Jackie and, and and Presto and these guys who've been around. They were so nervous going out on stage. They were walking around pacing, chewing on, 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 on uh, say, toothpicks and walking around, squeezing the back of chairs, trying to like get calmed down. I'm thinking, okay, it's good that I'm nervous too. Like, in other words, these guys are such seasoned pros and they still get that sort of butterfly thing before they perform. Everybody does. That's okay. But I got to see Jackie perform that night. and He was quite talented. He was a very funny stand-up comedy magician that you would want in a nightclub setting. You know, wow. As were those other guys. They were all great. They were all great.
0: I had no idea that Jackie was also a performer. Yeah. That That is amazing.
1: No. And, and quite good. It's Just so smooth and polished. And, you know, I mean, they could, these guys can entertain with anything. Yeah. Presto did the the, uh, the electric chair act, which you've never seen. He's is, is just funny to believe. I mean, just, you know, you know, lighting torches with his tongue and you know, just, just shocking the audience. Remember, it was, it was just super. It was super.
0: Wow. Now, um, between Al and his son, did they ever write any books or were they, everything they did was basically verbal?
1: Uh, yeah, so There wasn't a lot of writing there. Um, Again, remember, I don't know i don't remember i thought i knew this at one time i don't even know how far al got in school i don't think he, he may not even finish high school right so um so there wasn't a great deal of writing there uh they wrote uh, jackie wrote one or two little like clown books you know things about different clowns gags and stuff okay. the one thing that al uh, kind of um edited is a copy in the hard copy of this um i would get this wrong because it's our mysteries which I didn't know this at the time, and I'm sorry about that. It's a it's a, it's in a compilation of of tricks by people like Roy Benson and Al Baker and one from Flosso um, Harbin, uh, Think a Drink Hoffman and Eugene Laurence. Um, this was done to help somebody. I want to say I want to say John Mulholland. Okay, yeah. I remember this book. Yeah, and and I reprinted it as part of the putting on favorites. The whole thing was reprinted here because uh, Jackie owned the rights to it. So I said, let's put it in here and get it out there again because people hadn't seen it. And okay. I tell you, there are a couple of tricks in there that you could build a stage act There are a couple. There's some magic in here that's so good. Again, I'm not 100 sure. I think it was it was one of the main magicians. I think it was Mahaland who was just down on his luck, and they gave him all the proceeds. Okay. Um. But that was the only thing that, that, that Flosso sort of authored. He only wrote one trick in there. And I guess it's, he probably had somebody else actually do the writing. He provided the trick.
0: Gotcha. Uh,
1: interestingly, in uh, we didn't mention, uh, Pop Krieger, which yeah. was Flosso's father-in-law, right? So he was a famed magician who worked with Max Molini. He probably... You probably will cite us to episode something or other in a moment, but um, uh, but Pop Krieger, um, I did a little work on him. And that was one of the reasons I tried to expound on some other magicians who haven't been covered, just the way you do when you're wonderful. I mean, this podcast. Um, I did a little background on Pop Krieger, and you know, you read his literature, and he talks about he's the prince of you know magicians, and he's the king, and he's performed for royalty in Europe or whatever. In truth, he was illiterate he didn't write any of those things. He's covered very little in the magic magazine because it required you at least to write letters saying, I'm now in the Catskills and I'm performing for this family or whatever. There's very little of that on Pop Krieger because he was illiterate. So although he was the prince and professor and, you know, whatever, these guys had it rough, you know, they didn't have a lot of formal education, but we, you know, we tend to look at it through this sort of lens, right. Where everybody has, you know, goes to college, you know, these guys, you know, they had it rough. They were out there performing for their dinner. I think fossil started performing at sideshows when he was 14, but so they didn't get too far in school. Well, this has been
0: an education.
1: And uh, now let me ask you, is the book still available? Um, it's okay. So you can find, the hard copies are hard to find. They've become a collector's item of itself. l l put this out in the 90s and has been republished. You can see them on eBay now and then, but they're hard to find. However, anybody who wants to read it for four bucks, it's on the Kindle. Um, I put it there just so people would have it. It doesn't have the pictures; it's not as nicely dressed up, but it's a good story. And if, for four dollars, you can get it on the Kindle if you can't find the original book. I recommend the original book if you can find it, but there are get.
0: I got my copy on eBay. I think there were three copies, so it's it's still out there. But but I love the fact that it's available to any. But for
1: four dollars, you can't beat that. So that's uh... if you find an original on eBay. and you can send me a self-addressed stamped envelope and a sticker. You can have an autograph copy.
0: Oh, well, I'm sending you mine. (laughs) Once I get it, it's in Virginia. (laughs) Very cool. Thank you for uh, being our first interview for the Magic Detective Podcast. I think it was a a tremendous success and I think our listeners are going to be happy to have heard the stories and learned a
1: lot about Al Flosso. On behalf of all your listeners, I just want to say thank you for everything you're doing. You're doing incredible work on this and you're taking up stories that should be told, should be preserved and it's hard and we all are grateful.
0: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, with that, we're going to call it a night. Uh, everybody, thank you for listening to the Magic Detective Podcast. Please remember, if you liked this episode, uh, like it in the, you know, wherever you can on your uh, podcasting device and uh, If you don't mind, uh, consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts because that gets uh, more people to hear it when you do that. And uh, my name is uh, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. We had uh, Gary Brown with us tonight uh, talking about Al Flosso from his wonderful book, The Coney Island Faker, The Magical Life of Al Flosso. Thank you once again, everybody. Have a great week and be safe.
1: we go yes this is something you don't know about i don't think this was the murder of arnold rothstein this was a little extra pamphlet i used to give people when they bought the book for me and i put it on line for a while and who also knew who killed arnold rothstein the gambler really yes now here's what happens i'm going to tell you the story you decide whether you want he's on it might be too involved but uh one day jackie tells me this after the book comes out Oh, my dad knew who killed him. I said, what do you mean? And we got this from Jay Marshall, who knew it, but he didn't know who again. So I go back to Jack and said, oh, I never told you that story. It's this guy, McManus, who was actually accused of the murder in the first instance, but they lost the evidence and it was Tammany Hall politicians, it was all corrupt and whatever. And Flosso knew a guy who knew McManus and eventually he knew him and and, and McManus confessed to Flosso. okay? And said, yeah, I was the one who did that, right? But (laughs) Flosso always kept that under his hat and it was until the guy was long dead that he eventually shared it with his son and shared it with a couple of the magicians. Now, I put that out in this little website that I had with the book, right? Okay. Cute story. I wrote it like a Damon Runyon thing. A couple of years later, there, there is this, I'm in a bookstore, and there's this definitive like biography comes out about Arnold Rothstein, written by some college professor. It's this thick. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I got it right. You know what I mean? Like, so I look it up. And they turn the page and it says, you know, how did he die? And it says, meet Al Flosso. He's a five foot two inch magician. It was the Coney Island faker." da, da, da. And it relays the story of how Flosso knew that McManus did it and confessed to him. And then if you, there's a little like asterisk footnote thing and you turn to the back of the book and they cite my website. So, (laughs) I made history from a story that I hope is true. I think it's true, but I'm not so sure. So if you want to use that, we can we can do that. Yeah. That's funny. That is funny. A little, a little uh, human historical artifact as such. You know?